You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. What a, what a blessing it is to be able to worship our God together. You know, whenever we, we proclaim his name and, and whenever we proclaim what he's accomplished and is doing in us, how can our hearts not be filled with thanksgiving, right? One person agrees. Awesome. <laughs> no, are our hearts filled with thanksgiving right now for, for Jesus? Yeah. Uh, of course, we're discovering that thanksgiving is, is one of the, the major themes which runs throughout the letter to the Colossians, which we've been going through over the last couple of months. Basically, the, the more that we grasp our fullness and completeness in Christ, the more our hearts overflow with, with thanksgiving for him, for who he is, and, and subsequently, the, the less we'll desire or, or give into deceit and, and, and the emptiness of, of anything else, because we're satisfied in him. And so, we're going to continue with Colossians this morning. We're just going to get right into it, and I warned you last week that uh, it was going to be a two-parter, so we'll be reading from the same passage again that we read from last week, and... Um, that is Colossians 2, 16, 6 to 15. Colossians 2, 6 to 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. It'll be behind me on the screen as well. Colossians 2, 6 to 15. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Colossae. And he writes to them saying, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of months ago, um, my wife and I went to see a movie in the theaters, a rare event for us these days, and, and it was okay. Um, mo- movies haven't been great lately, am I right? But uh, anyways, w- one of the trailers that they showed before the movie was about these two girls, I guess, who, who had been possessed by demons. 
And uh, I'm not sure if it was like The Nuns 2 or Exorcist 2 or whatever. I don't really care. But I, I also can't remember much of the details of the movie, I just, or of the trailer. I, just as I recall it, it was showing clips of, of these possessed girls' faces getting all contorted and all creepy and evil looking and, and doing weird things like crawling up walls and, and, and jump scaring their parents and, and showing how the priests were powerless to exercise them and, and you know, things like that. So typical Hollywood affair. And after the trailer ended, I, I just couldn't help myself. I just started laughing. And uh, I tried to hold it in. I was kind <laughs> of, you know, but uh, I couldn't. Meanwhile, Audrey's, my wife is sitting next to me all embarrassed because everyone's looking at me laughing. But I couldn't help myself because I found the trailer so hilariously silly and, and, and just ridiculous. I, I mean, first of all, the movie was just looked poorly done. And so the trailer's attempt to scare the viewer just ended up feeling really cheesy. But what made me snicker was the whole way that, that the movie sensationalized and presented these demons. Again, it was just so ridiculous. More than that, as, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's filled with the fullness of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit, the idea of, of a demon being scary is no longer a thing. It's, it's like if I went back to, to visit my elementary school today and, and a grade three bully threatened to punch me. Exactly. <laughs> I'd laugh and I'd be like, okay, sure, kid, right? Like, I mean, when I was in grade two, when I was in grade two, I would have been afraid of a grade three bully. I was a, I was a really short, short kid. So grade three bully would have been, you know, that's, that's something I would have been afraid of. But as an adult, that wouldn't make any sense. And in the same way as Christians who now live and breathe in the freedom and authority of Jesus Christ, demons have, have nothing on us. Before we knew Jesus, though, it was a different story. So the letter to the Ephesians reminds us that before we were saved, we, we walked in the darkness. We, we followed the ways of the world. We were influenced by the power of the prince of the air who is at work in the disobedient. So, so don't get me wrong. We're, we're absolutely in the midst of a, a spiritual battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the sinful world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as it says, which certainly means that we need to be watchful, we need to be discerning, putting on the armor of God so that we don't get pulled into his lies and into his deceit, which is what we talked about last week. But we also need to understand and take hold, of, and what we need to take hold of is that as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of God the Father, we no longer need to be afraid of evil. And, and speaking of being part of God's kingdom as, as God's children, that's, that's the most wonderful thing which, which Paul's reminding the Colossians of in this passage. He's, he's reminding them here that those who've received Christ Jesus as Lord have been freely and graciously grafted into the family of God the Father with, with all the benefits thereof. In Luke 10 after the 72 disciples returned from their mission trip to proclaim the, the kingdom of God, they came back amazed. And, and they said to Jesus, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Which sounds exciting, right? 
But then Jesus replies in verses 18 to 20 saying, Luke 10, 18 to 20, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We rejoice not because we're, we're protected from demons. That, that's great. That's awesome. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. But we rejoice because our names are written in heaven, because we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We rejoice because Jesus alone made that a reality. On that end, it's, it's possible that there, there were some Judaizers among the Colossians who, who were trying to convince them otherwise, that they weren't part of the kingdom of God. And Judaizers is a name given to a group of people who were of Jewish descent who believed that Gentiles had to act like Jews in order to be part of God's people, in order to be part of his covenant promises. And, and this is probably why Paul brings up circumcision in the passage, because for the Jewish people, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant promise with Abraham and was therefore the, the defining physical distinction which represented their status as God's people signifying their covenantal relationship with God. And so it makes sense that, that some, some Jews among them might have tried to convince the Gentiles that, that faith in Jesus isn't enough, tell, telling them that they would also need to get circumcised and even ritually cleansed in, in order to claim their status as being part of God's people. So, and, and I'm just assuming here, but I'm guessing that, that for the male believers in Colossae, Paul's letter here would have been a pretty good read. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I'm sure they all gave a sigh of relief. <laughs> because according to Paul, no, they didn't have to be circumcised. They're, they're good the way they are. <laughs> but, but Paul's not only refuting this way of thinking here to spare them some pain and, and physical discomfort. He's also explaining to them that Jesus' death on the cross was a type of spiritual circumcision that's actually better than one done by human hands, and that it's one we join into through faith and baptism. His, his point here is that physical circumcision doesn't actually deal with our problems of sin and death and separation with God. Therefore, it's only through the cross where Jesus paid the full debt of our sins and, and defeated death as our perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that we can experience a, a type of spiritual circumcision which strips away or removes our sin guilt and eternally reconciles us with God. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 reminds us, and it says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So all, all of our sin, all of our debt was nailed to the cross. Like circumcision, our old nature was stripped away. Jesus took it all upon himself for us, for you, for me. No more condemnation, no more shame, no more guilt, no more sorrow. It was all nailed to the tree. 
He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might be called the righteousness of God. Which means we've been sealed and and grafted into a new and better covenant with God because of Jesus' broken body and blood graciously given for us. And not by anything that we could ever do by our own hands. As uh, theologian David Garland writes, In Paul's day, a Gentile male became a Jewish proselyte by becoming circumcised, being washed in a ritual bath, and if possible, offering a sacrifice at the temple. Paul picks up on these three elements of Jewish initiation and redefines them to assure the Colossians of their new status as full members of God's people. His redefinition centers on Christ's death. Christ's death is our circumcision, and we have been baptized into his death. So again, Christ's death is our circumcision, and we become united with his death and resurrection by faith, which is demonstrated through baptism, right? Where our old nature joins Christ in his death and burial, signified by going under the water, followed by being raised up and made alive with Christ in the power of his resurrection as we come up out of the water. Through Jesus, then, God the Father forgives us, makes us alive, and gives us a new identity as sons and daughters adopted, sealed by the Spirit, and grafted into a new and eternal heavenly citizenship with him. And and can we just ponder and, and rest in that, that knowledge and that reality for a minute? How awesome that is? I think sometimes as, as Christians, we, we have this tendency to race past this truth, thinking that it's basic or something. Yeah, yeah, Jesus died for our sins, whatever. Let's get on to some other stuff. No, this is what we rejoice in. Everything else is a cherry on top, but this is incredible. Because of Jesus, because of what he did in our place, our names are now written in heaven. That's incredible. Just just ponder and reflect on that for a minute. We're sons and daughters of the Almighty God. What? We're, We're citizens of his glorious kingdom. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, set free from sin, wrapped in his grace and love, sealed by the Holy Spirit, made alive, filled with Christ's fullness, covered in his righteousness and authority, made into his image bearers, and given an eternal inheritance. Romans 8, 15 to 16 says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Just think about that for a minute. How incredible that is. God is our loving Father. We're his beloved children. If we reminded ourselves of that every minute of every day, just think of how different our lives would be. God is our loving father. We're his beloved children. 
In the same way that the Father looked on on Jesus after he was baptized, he now looks upon us and says, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. He's talking about you. God the Father is pleased with you. And again, the amazing thing is that we, we did nothing to gain this status and nothing we or anyone else does can take that status away. He, he did it all for us. That's his love for us. And Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We now have, have nothing and no one to fear because at the cross, Jesus won. It is finished. At the cross, Jesus saved us and called us into his redemption. Nothing can separate us from his love. Not even demons or, or any spiritual powers, as much as they might try. Because again, at the cross, Jesus not only defeated the power of sin and death, but he also defeated and disarmed the rulers and authorities and principalities which would seek to influence and come against us. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in in this part of the letter to the Colossians as well. Jesus defeated evil. Of course, in in their Greco-Roman context and culture, they would have had many different ideas or or versions of, of what spiritual forces and beings there are. But Paul's reminding them in his letter here that at the cross, Jesus won the victory over over all of the evil spiritual forces and powers, whether the real and fake ones. He he won. He won the victory over all of them, which again means that as followers of Jesus, as recipients of a new covenant with God through Christ's death at the cross, we also walk and live in that victory. So so demons may, may try to come against us, and they will try. But they have no power over us. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. I thought it, I thought it was pretty neat. Yesterday, this was the, the verse of the day for the YouVersion Bible app. Good timing. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And I'm sure that some of us at this point, with all the talk of of demons and evil spirits, maybe you're cringing right now, because in our modern-day rational culture, generally we don't often like talking about these things or or admitting that they're real. One reason for that, I think, is because we we have an obscured idea of, of what they are. In the past, you know, the Gothic Renaissance and medieval cultures, they often portrayed things like demons, satans, hell, and angels in a way that our, our quote-unquote educated and more civilized society might find difficult to, to grasp or believe in, the way that they're represented. But, but as I mentioned earlier, Hollywood does the same thing, right? Like, I mean, just look at any cartoon or, or, or horror movie about the devil and, and demon possession and exorcisms and stuff. They're usually pretty silly and, and pretty far-fetched. So the truth is that we've been given a, a twisted or a obscured view of them over the last couple hundred years in our Western culture. 
So in many ways, we, we've just turned them into these, these mythical concepts or, or subjects for cheap scares. And, and so it's hard for us to talk about them as a reality sometimes. Uh, regarding the topic of spiritual beings, uh, John Mark Homer writes, the, these two words, angels and demons, come with a truckload of cultural baggage. We think of angels as blonde Swedish supermodels with a 10-foot wingspan, and, and we think of demons as little cartoon characters with horns and a pitchfork larking about on Bugs Bunny's shoulder. Neither of these lazy caricatures does justice to their reality, but they are real, not fake, not non-entities, not a myth from a superstitious age. So the Bible does give us loads of information about hell and, and demons, about these spiritual rulers and powers and beings. But at the same time, we also have to be honest in saying that there's also a lot we don't know, which is okay. Yet, Jesus does talk about hell and Satan and demons quite a bit, more than anyone else. And so we can't ignore that. We can't, we can't ignore that, right? Jesus talks about it a lot. And um, so what we do know, Cliff, note, Cliff knows there's lots more, obviously, but there's books about these things. But what we do know, according to the Bible, is that these forces do exist, that Satan was thrown out of heaven and, and into hell, and ever since he and his, his minions, we'll call them, have, have been at war against the purposes of God in this world, and that because of sin, ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and believed the lie of the serpent that God wasn't for them and that they could be gods themselves, ever since that first sin, these powers now have a claim on this world and over death which is why Satan is often called the ruler of this world or the prince of the power of the air or whatever. And uh, according to Ephesians, that's, that's what happens when we sin as well. We give into and open ourselves up to his influence. Not, not that we can blame every sinful thing that we do on Satan. Well, Satan made me do it. No, we didn't. There's, there's billions of humans and only one of him. We need to remember that as well. So the chances that he's in your bedroom are are slim to none, <laughs> okay? There's billions of humans, only one of him. So, nice try. You can't blame everything on him. But willful and unrepentant sin signifies who the master of our heart is and whose influence and will we're following, right? But thankfully, we also know that God promised Eve that her offspring would one day crush the heel of the serpent and deal with the problem of evil and the, and the power of sin for good. Again, this is a promise that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled and accomplished by his own death at the cross. Pastor Daryl Johnson writes, At the cross, all the forces that raged against God and God's purposes were overthrown and disarmed. The cross towers over the wrecks of time because the crucified Christ is God's great victory over the powers. That's, that's one of the, the incredible things about the cross is that the enemy thought he was winning by killing Jesus, but he was actually participating in his own defeat. I love that. <laughs> it's incredible. Colossians 2.15 again says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This description describes Jesus as marching in triumph over his enemies, making a public spectacle over them. 
like this parade. It's this, it's this march. And as Christians, we get to join in that march. We get to boast in Christ and shove Jesus' victory in the devil's face. On that end, when we're warned in Scripture to watch out for, for demonic influence and whatnot, it's definitely serious and, and something that we should take seriously, as we learned last week about having discernment. But at the same time, it's not meant to scare us or, or to make us constantly be, be looking over our shoulder, worried that a demon's going to pop out around the next corner and jump scare us and take us by surprise like some cheap horror movie. No, the, the purpose of being warned is to make sure that we keep our trust and our focus on Jesus Christ that, and that we're in his word, that we're being obedient to it, that we're being consistent in prayer. Because as long as we're doing that, these spiritual rulers and authorities, demons and the like, are just, are just powerless to come against us. 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And this is also what Paul's reminding the Colossians of, that we've been filled with the fullness of Christ. And if he's in us, there is no room for anything else. So some people ask sometimes, well, can Christians be possessed by a demon? And the answer is, there is absolutely no possible way that a Christian could be possessed by a demon. Jesus isn't going to be roommates with a demon. Amen? <laughs> he who is in you, Jesus, is greater than he who is in the world. A.W. Tozer once wrote, I'm not afraid of the devil. The devil can handle me, right, if it's just him versus the devil. The devil's going to win. He's got judo moves I've never heard of. It's, it's crazy that an old theologian used, the, used judo. I don't know. He's got, but it's, seriously, if it's just us against the devil, he's going to win. But he can't handle the one to whom I'm joined. He can't handle the one to whom I'm united. He can't handle the one whose nature dwells in my nature. There's no competition here. It's, it's not even close. E even before Jesus rendered evil powerless at the cross, demons were already afraid of him. Right? You read through the Gospels. Every time they saw him, they were terrified. They recognized his authority, and he commanded them, and they listened. Satan himself even tried to tempt Jesus three times, but three times Jesus overcame with the word of God. The spiritual forces have nothing on Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. It says the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. In other words, Jesus is taking down the forces of hell, and they won't be able to withstand it. Jesus is on the offensive, not the defensive. We often use that verse as like, like, like we're protected or whatever because when Satan's coming against us. No, it's the opposite. Jesus is on the offensive not the defensive. And even if he was on the defensive, as uh, Pastor Paul Washer recently stated, if all the world were, were to come against Jesus, if you were to empty hell, if you were to bring forth all the demons wherever they dwell and put them all together in one consolidated army and they came against the throne of Christ, it would be like a little gnat beating his head against a piece of granite the size of the world. It would only make for laughter in heaven. 
On that end, and, and, and since we're on the subject, October 31st is coming up in a couple of days. Ooh. It's All Saints Eve and also Reformation Day, actually when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg church door, initiating the rise of the Protestant Reformation. So there's a lot of history, actually, to celebrate, Christian history to celebrate on that day. But one of the things that I'll be thankful for on that day, like every other day, is that with Christ in me, I'm now a child of Abba Father. And that means I have nothing to fear, and nothing can separate me from his love. I say that because I don't want to offend anybody. You can have your, your opinions, stick to your consciences, all that. But I just think too many Christians sensationalize or amplify Halloween night into this evening that we need to fear or dread. So we close the shutters, we turn off the lights, pray extra prayers, make sure we don't talk to our neighbors. But the thing is, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. It's all a sham anyways. Satan and his, and his minions want us to think they're more powerful on that night, but they aren't. There could be like hundreds of seances and, and people worshiping Satan. They don't get more powerful on that night. We don't suddenly forget that Jesus died on the cross that night, right? And, and, and while we definitely shouldn't underestimate their influence, we, we, we also have to make sure that we don't attribute more power to demons than they actually have. And we start just giving them power that, that, that they don't have when we do that, right? Just like the Israelite spies did after they saw the occupants of the, the promised land. They, they, they came back and, and, and they said that there were these giants there and, and we don't want to go there. We're, we're afraid of going into the promised land. Why were they afraid? Because they didn't have their eyes on God, who is way bigger than these supposed giants. Let's, let's not do that. R rather, since we know that Jesus rendered these rulers and evil spirits powerless against us at the cross, we also know that Halloween is no different than any other night. Jesus still wins. Jesus still has the authority. And when he returns in glory, they'll all be crushed for good. So we don't have to run and hide in fear on Halloween. Because if we fear God, we have nothing else to fear. In, in fact, it's the opposite. The spiritual forces of evil are afraid of Christ in you. The spiritual forces of evil are afraid of Christ in you. Darkness has nothing on light. Light pierces the darkness. It doesn't flee from it. It exposes what's in the darkness. Right? When, when, when you walk into a room and turn on the light switch, does the darkness stick around? No. It's gone. Light overcomes the darkness. It's the darkness that flees from the light. James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Does it say run from the devil? No. It says resist the devil, and he will run from you. The devil runs from us because we stand in Jesus' name. 
So I want to say, if, if you're feeling spiritually attacked or, or, or tempted or oppressed or anxious or overwhelmed, repent in prayer. Repent just means turn back to Jesus. Repent in prayer and proclaim the name of Jesus. Proclaim the name of Jesus over whatever you're going. Find freedom and rest in his grace, in his faithfulness, in his victory. You don't, you don't need holy water or incantations or, or, or anything like that. No, rejoicing and giving thanks to Jesus in prayer and worship is our spiritual warfare. But speaking of, of fleeing from evil, though, there, there's a story in the book of Acts about the seven sons of Sceva. And Sceva was the high priest at the time. And his seven sons were these traveling Jewish exorcists. And uh, after witnessing the Apostle Paul ministering and healing people and casting evil spirits out of people in Jesus' name, they, they attempted to do the same. And, and this is how it went down. I find this story incredibly hilarious. Acts 19, 13 to 17, it says, Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. And when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. When there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Not the sons of Sceva, right? That's for sure. What, what, what a shocking but yet hilarious scene that, that would have been a witness, right? All these naked dudes running out of and limping out of the house in terror. I often imagine it in like, you know, a 1930s movie film where it's like a little bit sped up a bit. And, and I always imagine one of them at least jumping out of the window. Just this hilarious scene. But anyways, uh, what, what I find just powerful about this message, about this passage, is when the evil spirit says... I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? What's the difference between Paul and the sons of Sceva? The difference was that Paul, as a born-again Christian, operated in the authority and victory of Jesus Christ, whereas the sons of Sceva just tried to invoke the name of Jesus that Paul preached. And again, in the same way as Christians who've been redeemed by Christ, covered in his righteousness, adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father, and confirmed as spirit-filled citizens of his glorious kingdom, we operate from that same victorious authority that Paul did. With Christ in us, demons see us and say, I know Jesus and I recognize you. And they tremble in fear. We have nothing to fear because we bear the image of the one whom they're afraid of. 
We've been filled with the fullness of Christ. We walk in his victory and his authority. And therefore, we can run the race that's set before us with confidence, with freedom and boldness, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and nothing can stop us. As it says in Psalm 27:1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's the confidence we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. In both our spiritual battles and in our calling to proclaim his name, Christ crucified is our victory.